God's people. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. As I said, this is the final passage and the final message of our journey through the book of Jonah. And I hope that as it closes, we've come to see the truth of 2 Timothy 3:16 through 17, which says, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for correction, for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It says, all scripture. And the Greek word used here is graphe, which means that which is written. Um, there's a lot of folks that think that the Bible is not the Word of God, but it contains the Word of God. This is actually opposed to what Jesus believed, so our view of Scripture shouldn't be less or greater than that of our Lord. And the Bible says that all written Bible is God's breathed out Word. All of the written words that comprise our Bibles are inspired by God and are His own true, reliable, and helpful words intended to train us in righteousness to reprove us, which, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, means to scold or correct, usually gently or with kindly intent. It's to teach us and to equip us for every good work. This is an argument for the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible says, if there's a good work that you as a Christian are called to do, the Bible is sufficient to equip you for that. All of this means that these small, obscure, or overly familiar books like Jonah or Micah or Nahum are immensely valuable and edifying for God's people if we take the time to study them and learn from them. And this understanding of Scripture is why we've taken so many messages to get through the book of Jonah. We've seen that even in little portions of the book of Jonah, there have been great and deep truths which God has to teach us. And this is true for all of Scripture. All of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. That means those long chapters in Ezekiel where God's describing the, uh, the layout of the temple. It means those first chapters of Chronicles where it's endless genealogies. All of it is profitable for us. And this means all of Jonah is God-breathed and useful for growing us in the Christian life. And with this understanding of God's Word, we dug deep into the text and saw that the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God are displayed even in the book of the Bible about the fish, which we didn't actually talk very much about the fish at all. This final passage of Jonah is replete. It's filled with great doxology and great theology. That is, it gives us reasons to praise and to worship God 
and it gives us great truths about God and truths about ourselves. And in many ways, this passage that we just read that we're looking at today is a, is a great summary of everything that we've looked at in the book of Jonah because this book has really been about perspective, true perspective. It's been about showing the reader who God is by holding up a lens through which we can see him more clearly, and it has shown the reader who they, who we are, by holding up a mirror. And in each case, we are gaining a clear perspective of who God is, of who we are, and what difference that should make for your life. The things that God's word show us about him in Jonah are awesome, and I mean that in the classic sense of the word, as in they're awe-inspiring, the true definition of the word. There are so many great and wonderful truths about God that are revealed in Jonah throughout this book. In uh, chapter 4, verse 2, which we looked at last week, is a great example where it says, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's a truth statement about God. That's who God is, the God that we worship. This is something that you can take to the bank, so to speak, and know that the God we serve is a gracious God. The God we serve is a merciful God. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from disaster. And there are more of these great truths which we will see in today's passage in which God orchestrates nature to help Jonah learn true perspective of, about himself, about the lost, and about God. So while the lens of God's glory should inspire awe in us, that is in the more that we learn about God, the more we should be filled with awe for him and uh, grow our capacity to love and worship him, the mirror that's held up to see ourselves has been and should have been very uncomfortable at times. Being reproved and corrected by scripture will and does offend our pride and our exaltation of self. We will either be humbled by what God's word says, or we will be provoked to resentment and defiance by it. And sadly, it's often the latter. In my prayer, right before the sermon, I quoted Hebrews, which says, today if you hear your, his voice, don't harden your hearts. That was quoting from the Old Testament, where the Israelites heard God's voice and hardened their hearts. God's word came to them, and instead of submitting to his, his, his uh, authority and submitting to his word, they hardened themselves and they became stiff-necked. So the author of the Hebrews says, don't do that. If you hear God's word, don't harden your hearts. But that's often what happens to us. Just a little further in the book of 2 Timothy from the passage I just read about the inspiration of Scripture, we see a charge from Apostle Paul to the preacher. I mentioned this last week. This is a passage I like to read on Sunday mornings to remind me of what I'm supposed to be doing up here and not supposed to be doing. But Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, I charge you, referring to the preacher, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, pretty serious, <laughs> preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. Sound doctrine, which means 
true biblical teaching. Sound doctrine is the truth that the Bible says uh, is hard for us to hear. It is hard because we are by nature proud, independent, prone to wander, stiff-necked, and we think we're really great. The sound doctrine confronts us and exposes our desperate need for God and our desperate sinfulness. It exposes our radical depravity, and people don't want to hear that. If you teach people that they're sinners in desperate need of grace, they cannot earn their way to God, people are going to leave your church. You're not going to get these 20,000-person megachurches, you know, barring a marvelous revival from God, preaching the truth of the gospel. It offends us. And Paul tells the preacher that his job is to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. And exhort sometimes is translated as encourage in your Bibles. And he tells them to do this because people are not going to put up with what's good for them, but will instead find false teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. Things like man is basically good and that God would never dream of judging them because they're just so nice and lovable. So what's all this mean? Well, it means a few things. First, it means that if your preacher never offends you due to his faithful teaching of Scripture, not just because he's an annoying jerk, which I'll own to, um, then he's not doing his job. God's word will offend our idol of self at some point. And if you haven't been provoked to humility, repentance, or even anger by a biblical truth from a preacher speaking truth, then he hasn't done his job. He's been teaching, telling you things that you want to hear that aren't going to offend you for different reasons. And like a doctor giving the bad news and a diagnosis so that real healing and uh, real care can happen, or a sports coach pointing out the faults and the weaknesses and the athlete for training, for self-discipline, the preacher must speak God's truth, even if it's unpleasant and even if it's downright offensive. You know, Paul says in, uh, I think it's Galatians 1.10, he said, am I now trying to please man or am I trying to please God? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You cannot have it both ways as a preacher. You're serving man or God. If you're serving man, you're not serving Christ any longer. Jonah, our character of our series, was offended by God's word. From the very first verses of the book of Jonah, God's word and decree made Jonah angry. It made him rebellious, defiant, unfaithful, malicious, and bitter. We've seen all of these emotions as we've gone through this study. And so really, it's, it's natural that we will see this reaction in others who are confronted by God's word today. But the truth is frequently offensive because it confronts and it overthrows the lies that we believe and the fantasies that we live in. And this is a lesson that we all need to remember in which our Western culture desperately needs to learn. The truth is offensive. Can we understand that why we've jettisoned truth is because we've chosen uh, this this uh, a mistaken concept of what tolerance is, and this is mistaken idea that we can never be offensive. Truth is exclusivistic and often offensive by its nature. As one apologist used to say, you know, if I step out in the street, it's either me or the bus. You know, it's one, it's one or the way or the other. And second, these lessons in Scripture mean that we need to be regularly studying God's Word. We need to be instructed by it, by pastors and elders, and we need to be sitting under it being preached if we're going to know the difference between what's true and what's a lie and have this mirror of Scripture held up so that we can see whether we're being misled by the deceit of sin. Several places in the Proverbs say that 
the way of a fool seems right in his own eye. They say, if you're going off the rails and doing a, a really bad, stupid thing, you think you're doing something brilliant and correct. And how do you know that you're, gonna, that you're actually wrong? Well, the Bible says to be in fellowship together as Christians, exhorting one another so that you don't get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Every time we sin, we're believing the lie. We're believing that this is going to make me happier than following God. We're, we're just like Adam and Eve did. Eve said, believe the serpent instead of God's word. And, and we do the same thing. So how do you know if you're going off the rails? Corporate fellowship, the word being preached and spoken to you. And third, this means that we must hear all of God's word and not just the parts that we like to hear or find interesting. A faithful preacher isn't going to skip the parts that he thinks are going to be offensive because he knows that he has to ultimately answer to God and not to popular opinion. James says that the teacher is going to be judged more harshly. The things that I'm saying to you up here, I'm going to be judged for. God's going to hold me accountable to the garbage that comes from my imagination that I spew out at you or whether I was faithful to the text or not. You know, Pastor Jim said a few weeks ago that he's going to be preaching through the book of Romans beginning at the end of this month. I read a book uh, very recently on the doctrines of grace, and the author said that he, he was doing Bible study through the book of Romans. He didn't even get to his teaching. He just read part of Romans, and he had people stand up and walk out of his Sunday school lesson insulted on what was in Scripture. And so I expect some of you will be so provoked by what God has to say in Romans that you will either leave this church or consider leaving it, because I've seen it many times in my Christian walk. But I urge you now, before it happens, that when you get offended by what God's word has to say, that you truly ask whether it's what God has to say, and if so, humble yourself under his mighty hand and be changed by his truth. Let your perspective be changed by the true word of the Lord. Do this and don't flee from the presence of the Lord in a rage like Jonah did. Because when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, he hated it. He hated what God had to say. And when he, uh, he heard it, he fled the presence of the Lord towards Tarshish. And to give that a modern spin, when Jonah heard his pastor teach from the Bible, he hated it and left the church for a place where he would never again be confronted with doctrine he didn't like. And this is often what we do. I'm going to leave that church. I'm just going to have church at home from now on. Why? Well, because no one's going to confront you with the truth. In this final passage of Jonah, we've read that he is still displeased with God showing mercy to the Ninevites. He's unhappy with God's decree and God's true nature as a compassionate God. You know, that's the part we tend to like the most as Americans. We like the idea of the compassionate, loving God. Um, Miroslav Volf has a book uh, called Exclusion and Embrace, and he's writing from somebody who grew up in the Balkans and lived in the Balkans during those horrible wars. He says, you can't sell the compassionate God gospel to these people. And the only way that you can teach these people to not extract revenge and murder these people that have harmed them so badly is if you tell them that God is a just God. Um, they don't like this idea of the compassionate God. We should be able to understand Jonah a little bit as well, because he was dealing with the people that, that murdered and attacked and brutalized his own nation. So he hated the idea of the compassionate God. So he doesn't just run, uh, in the second portion in our, in our passage today, he doesn't run from God's presence like he did in the beginning of the book, but he sits and, for lack of a better word, he pouts. 
there's still more for Jonah to learn. And through his actions and God's personal instruction, there's more for us to learn as well. So we look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. In verse 4, which we looked at last week, God asked Jonah if he did well to be angry at the repentance of the Ninevites. And Jonah didn't answer. That's where our, our passage ended last week. But instead of answering God, he essentially storms out of the city and goes to a place where he can observe Nineveh and see if God's going to change his mind and destroy it after all. He, he makes himself a tent and he sits in the shade to presumably wait out the 40-day countdown to destruction given in the message to the Ninevites. Now, the text doesn't tell us why Jonah thought God might change his mind or what he thought was going to happen at the end of the 40 days. You'd expect him to either be celebrating with the, the revival of this city or just to go home uh, instead of going out and waiting in the heat just to watch what happens. But in this sitting in the tent, kind of throwing a fit, God continues to teach and care for Jonah, which I find encouraging as well. See, this big purpose of God, saving the Ninevites, the Ninevites repent. This prophet has done his job, uh, but instead of treating him like an expended cartridge or an empty milk jug, God still cares for him. God still is intimately involved in Jonah's life. So in a compassionate gesture, God causes a plant to grow and cover Jonah with its shade to save him from his discomforts and give him a break from the hot sun in modern-day Iraq. Then it's amazing how much the commentators wanted to talk about what kind of plant it was. But it doesn't matter. It's, it's incidental to this story. It's hot, though, where Jonah is. Um, if you'll recall, the ruins of Nineveh are on the outskirts of the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. And I checked the weather for Mosul online, and it was supposed to be a high of 112 degrees today, and it was 117 degrees um, on Friday. Uh, so it's a hot area, and Jonah was very happy to have this plant covering him. In fact, verse 6 says, he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now this phrase should stand out to us. It seems like a pretty normal descriptive phrase, a uh, fairly humdrum thing to say if you're just reading the chapter and you move on. But what should strike us is that in verse 1 of chapter 4, uh, which we looked at last week, the Bible says that Jonah was exceedingly angry about the repentance of the Ninevites. So we have essentially a compare and contrast moment for us, which is important for what God wants to teach us and Jonah in the rest of the passage. Jonah is exceedingly angry at the lost being saved and exceedingly glad because of a big plant. And the thought should jump into our heads immediately that Jonah needs to get some perspective which is precisely what God intends to give Jonah in this passage. So we look at Jonah 6 through 8a. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. God appointed, God appointed, God appointed. This repeated phrase shows us one of the main themes of not only Jonah, but of the Bible itself, of all of Scripture, God's sovereignty. 
Four times in the book of Jonah, we see God appointing something, and once it says he hurled a storm. And this indicates God's direction and control over his creation. And, uh, chapter 117, God appoints the fish to swallow Jonah and save him. And in our passage, we see God appointing a plant to grow and cover Jonah, God appointing a worm to attack and kill the plants, and God appointing a scorching east wind from the east. The Bible speaks a tremendous amount about God being the sovereign king over his creation. But most modern people, and sadly, this includes many professing evangelicals, have very inadequate or unbiblical ideas of God's sovereignty. And this isn't surprising necessarily because God's sovereignty is one of those doctrines that we were referring to earlier that confronts us it offends us because it reminds us that God being sovereign means that we aren't sovereign. If God being the ultimate king, it means that we aren't ultimate kings ourselves, which again is the offense that caused Adam and Eve to want to sin in the garden. They wanted to be like God. And it's sad when professing Christians downplay or ignore the doctrine of God's sovereignty because it shows that they don't know their Bibles very well at all, that they don't believe their Bibles very well, or subsequently, they don't know the God they profess to know and love very well at all. I was kind of reminded of, of my little son uh, with this subject, because he knows me, but if you asked him what my name was, where I was born, my birthday, how old I am, he would have no idea. He has a true knowledge of me, but it's extremely limited. To him, I'm, I'm Dada, and I'm the guy that changes his diaper in the middle of the night. But his knowledge is grossly insufficient. And so many of us as Christians, our knowledge is grossly insufficient because we're not studying God's word enough. Or when we come to a passage we don't like, we discard it. We say we don't want to deal with that. Or if it's difficult for us to comprehend, instead of following it through and praying for God to reveal his truth to us, we just write it off and ignore it forever. In the book of Jonah, we see God's sovereignty given as a matter of fact. It's not presented as a plausible argument. This isn't a bunch of theologians sitting in a room saying, you know, I believe God is sovereign. Oh, I believe he's not fully sovereign. No, the author just states it. This, this is a fact like gravity for the book of Jonah. The writer doesn't try to make a case for God's sovereignty. He assumes it. He just says it like it is, plainly. God appointed these things. God is Lord over nature. Jonah professed that he knew God was going to save the Ninevites, uh, knowing, showing, as the rest of the Bible does, that God is sovereign over our salvation as well. This is why Jonah ran. He knew God was going to save the Ninevites. Again, Jonah says in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your translation might even more accurately say salvation is from the Lord. But God being sovereign alone isn't what the Bible ascribes to God. If you think about it, lots of concepts of God that are unbiblical believe that he's sovereign. What's unique about Christianity is that the Bible doesn't say that God is only the supreme power. It also says he is kind and compassionate. So in other words, God possesses a benevolent sovereignty. Now, the God of Islam has uh, ultimate authority, but he's not benevolent. And we see a lot of these idols of Eastern religions. They can be very benevolent and caring. They're not sovereign. God that we worship is benevolent and he's in control. He exercises his sovereignty for the good of the people in Jonah. For all of the people in the book of Jonah which are listed, God exercises benevolent sovereignty. 
to Jonah, the pagan sailors, and the Ninevites all benefit from God's sovereign good pleasure. And this is what we mean when we talk about God's providence. You've probably heard that word um, talked about before. The Puritans wrote a lot about the providence of God. Providence is God's benevolent sovereignty. It's not just that God's in control. It's not just that God's loving. It's that he's in control and he's loving. He is sovereign. He is benevolent. And he acts in his creation with both of these attributes. Uh, the Bible says that God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. So even people, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, Richard Dawkins, who spent his life trying to tell you that you're an idiot for believing in God, God still feeds him. God still gives him a house. God still gives him breath in his lungs. God still gives him a heartbeat. Even people like that, God shows kindness to. Romans 8.28 is a famous verse on God's benevolence and sovereignty combined, his providence. Romans 8.28 says, and I hope you all have this memorized. It's tremendously helpful when you have a rough period of life. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's sovereignty works all things. Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. If it falls into the category of all things, God's working it according to his own wisdom. And it says he works all things for good. That's his benevolence. All things. Everything that happens to a Christian is sent by God and meant for good. Even the painful things. And this is what Jonah is experiencing in this passage. You could ask, was it good or bad that the plant died? Well, it was extremely uncomfortable for Jonah, wasn't it? This plant that made him exceedingly glad was killed by God. And then God sent the scorching east wind to make Jonah really uncomfortable. These were things God sent to Jonah. But how does Jonah react? Verse 8b to 9. It's the second half of verse 8. And he, meaning Jonah, asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you well to, do well to be angry about the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So again, how does Jonah react to God's providence? Exactly like we do when our lives fall apart and when bad things come into our lives. Jonah throws a fit and wishes he was dead. He doesn't believe that God's actions are any good. He is revolted by God's sovereign choice in granting repentance to the Ninevites. And he is revolted by God's sovereign direction of nature and sees no hope or good that can come out of his frustration and he prays for death. But this is something that we have to recognize as Christians because we can believe the truth of Romans 8.28 up here, but getting it the farthest distance known to man, which is from here to here, is another matter because God doesn't tell you the outcome of your suffering. All you know is that you're in it and things are horrible right now. And you have to lean on this promise. Do you trust God or not? Do you trust the God that actually does know the end of the road or not? Um, and it's better to trust him truly than to do what Jonah did or to be very anxious about it. You know, consider somebody that gets onto an airplane and is just terrified and shaky the whole time. The pilot's gonna get you there. It doesn't matter whether you're confident or throwing a fit, you're still gonna get to where you're going. But wouldn't it be better to trust the skill of a pilot than to live your whole life or the whole flight throwing the fit and being anxious? Again, it's a lot of times easier said than done. 
because I'm only 38, but I've lived long enough to know that people get real suffering in life, and there are real issues that we deal with. It's not just, oh, I've got a flat tire and I'm supposed to be at work. There are real pain that we go through. And that's why God gives us Romans 8:28. But Jonah throws a fit, then he wishes he was dead. He doesn't believe that God's actions are any good. So again, as he did in 4.4, God asks, do you do well to be angry? And this time, Jonah answers and says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, last week, we talked about that question, and I told you to remember that question and ask, it, ask yourself it when, if you do well to be angry when you become bitter or angry during this last week. Uh, I don't know if any of you did it, but if you did, did you actually end up with Jonah's answer? Did you say, yes, I do deserve to be angry, or I do do well to be angry? And if you did, you've lost perspective, like Jonah did. You forgot, or you didn't know, or you didn't believe Romans 8.28. Whatever came into your life was from God, for your good, for his glory. That's why James says to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Can you do that? Can you count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds? No, Jonah would have known this truth about God even if Romans 8.28 hadn't been written yet because he was still the same God that he knew uh, factually. It's the same God in both Testaments. But Jonah also failed to apply God's truth to his life in this instant and realize that God was using the plants and the worm and the wind to teach Jonah some perspective. Verses 10 through 11 say of our passage, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Now here's your, your correction and perspective, Jonah. You're so angry at losing a small creature comfort in the plant that you want to die, yet you were exceedingly angry at the pity the Ninevites experienced. Jonah didn't work for the plant. God made it and God killed it in a short period of time. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. He owns it. You know, if you uh, lost all of your money tomorrow, could you say that God was being unjust to you? Because he gave you everything that you own. It's his. You're just using it for the short period of time that you live. But can we really be so offended when God chooses to give or to take as he wills? It's just a plant. In the grand scheme of things, it didn't mean anything. Yet this great city of lost souls is so morally confused and without the light of God's saving revelation, they're about to be destroyed for their sin. And Jonah's preoccupied with the plant. Jonah cares more for the small material comforts of his own life and thinks God is wrong for caring about the eternal destiny of 120,000 people. And Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book called Man Overboard, which I really benefited from in my previous study of Jonah, so I recommend it. And in that book, he wrote, verses 9 through 11 are a devastating critique of Jonah's spiritual condition. But it raises an issue no less disturbing about our own lives as Christians. Could the same be said about us? Do we care more about the items in our gardens, the produce of our fields, or perhaps the contents of our garage, our home, than we do about our fellow men and women and the spread of the gospel to them? 
Do we care more in the last analysis about our own comforts and plans than about the evangelism of the world in our time? The statistics of our giving or praying or going in the cause or name of Christ through the earth provide embarrassing reading to the church. They raise very real questions about whether we have begun to rid ourselves of the Jonah syndrome. Our Lord has commanded us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Do we respond to this command as Jonah did? Are we inwardly angry that God should impose upon us such a burden? If God is concerned, can we remain unconcerned? Now, those are real questions raised for us by this book. And if we truly and honestly examined ourselves, how much weight do we give to our own possessions and comforts instead of concern for those who are lost and perishing? You know, there's 120,000 people in Nineveh at this time. There's 3.7 million people in Mosul right now. Do we care about them? Do we realize that there are 30,000 people in Jefferson County who don't know their right hand from their left? Do we not realize that unless they repent at the gospel's preaching, that they are all going to perish? Do we not realize that unless somebody tells them the gospel, that they'll never repent at its teaching? Do we realize that unless Christians who have the gospel share it, then nobody will tell them the gospel? Maybe more specifically and more damning, do we care about this? Because we all know where Port Townsend stands and the rest of the county stands when it comes to uh, spirituality. When it comes to Christians amongst the population, churched people, we are the last county in the state of Washington. We're the most unchurched county in this entire state. The last I checked, Washington is the fourth most unchurched state of the union. There's only three states that are more uh, apostate than the one we live in. We live in a mission field, which is good news because you don't actually have to go anywhere except outside. But we know they have to be told. We know Port Townsend has to be told this message. The question is, why don't we? What is it that we value more in this world than obeying and following the sovereign Lord God Almighty? What is it that we value more than El Adonai? What is it that we're so desperately trying to cling to in this life which keeps us from following God? If only this was out of the way in my life, then I could follow you, Lord. If only I didn't have to worry about blank. You've heard of a, um, this missionary, his last name was Stud. I think it was C.T. Stud. He was a world-famous athlete in his time, very wealthy. And he gave it all up. He got rid of all of his money to go on the mission field. So these things, how can I compare to following Christ? These things that are inhibiting my following Christ. What comforts and pleasures are more important to you than God? And God has given us, through Jonah, this lesson in perspective. God cares passionately for the lost. He cares for us. We were all lost at one point, if you are in Christ. You might still be lost, for all I know. Um, but if you are in Christ, God passionately cared enough to send somebody to you, to give the gospel to you and to change you. And he calls us to follow him. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 to 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
That's, that's good theological math right there. And I, I think about that question a lot when I see a lot of these you know, billionaire false teachers trying to get your money from you. Now, how's that possibly going to be worth it? The petty comforts and securities and the materialistic idols that we so desperately cling to won't last, and they can't save us. You've heard this story before. Um, when this wealthy man passed away, Rockefeller died. When Rockefeller died, somebody asked his accountant, well, how much money did he leave behind? His accountant said, all of it. If we're going to follow Christ, we must deny ourselves and lose ourselves for him. And that doesn't mean purposefully trying to get yourselves killed, although death, for Jesus' sake, is something thousands of Christians experience every single year. But it specifically means laying aside your comforts, your agendas, your prejudices, your plans, your selfish ambition, and following the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to deny yourself and follow Christ? You can't keep the things of this world. Remember that passage I cited before, 2 Peter, which says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, how should you then live in lives of holiness and godliness? Since all of your stuff is going to wind up burned up in the future, since all of your material possessions and all of your, your, your medals and your plaques on the wall are going to just be dissolved, how then should you live? There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. And the treasures of the pyramids were there because those kings could not take them with them into the afterlife like they planned. And Jesus says, and what profit is it if you actually could gain the entire world with all of its wealth and privilege, which nobody has actually done, but what would it benefit you if you lost your soul for eternity? Even if you were the supreme emperor of the entire world for 10,000 years and nothing was denied you, what would that compare with eternity in hell under God's wrath? It wouldn't be worth it. Yet Jesus gives us the real answer to life that we're all seeking. Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake actually finds it. This is the Christian paradox, isn't it? We think we're trying to save our lives by grabbing everything in this world, but we're actually losing our lives. But it's when we truly lose our lives for Christ's sake that we actually find the life that we've been looking for. And the life that we're seeking in materialism isn't there. It's only found in Christ. And if we would only stop eating the dirt out of dry wells and drink from the fountain of the living water, we would find it when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, when we realize that the world is passing away and that judgment is coming, when we realize that we should not store up treasures on earth, which can be destroyed by mildew or fire or will end up in garage sales or goodwill or at the dump, but instead we store up treasures in heaven that can neither be taken away nor destroyed. I mean, that's just good investments, isn't it? I'm going to put all of my time and money into things which I can't keep, which are going to get destroyed, and some other person's going to pick them up at a garage sale for a nickel. Or I can invest in the things which cannot ever be taken away from me for all of eternity. So how should you then live? This is the final lesson from Jonah, a lesson in perspective. And this whole book has been a lesson in perspective. The whole book has been saying, look who God is, Look who you are, so how should you then live in response to that? If the Bible is true in everything that it says, and if the God revealed in it is the God who is really there, how should you be living each day? I mean, if you 
Ask yourself that question. And if you really believed it, Monday morning, what would change? Everything in this Bible is absolutely true. This God is actually the God that I'm going to meet someday. How's that going to change how I live? What should we be spending our time and our money and our thoughts pursuing? We have this, this culture of binge-watching Netflix. And I think, OK, well, how long is this an average series? 12 hours, something like that? There's 12 hours gone. And what did you sacrifice it to? This entertainment. What could you have done with your time? There's 12 hours of your life that could have been spent seeking Christ that are gone. You can't get them back. With Philippians 3, 7 through 9, we have the Apostle Paul who had this good perspective. And he says, remember, Apostle Paul had everything by the world's standing. He was academic elites. He had position in his nation and authority. He had the right connections. He had everything. What's he say? Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And that word rubbish is actually dumb. Like this, is, this is how I balance things out. May I count a little holiness gained as overbalancing all my losses. How can we compare? If I lose everything in my life but I gain Christ, what's, what's the, how, how do you even measure that? So he's also able to say in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ. If I'm going to live, I live for Christ. To die is gain. I win either way as a follower of Jesus. If I live, I'm living for the Lord Jesus Christ, and if I die, I'm with him. So I, I can't lose. Verse 11 of our passage, God asks, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And then the book is over. It's an abrupt ending, and we're being left with this last word from God to contemplate what he has said and what we've learned from this book. He just stopped it. There's no, you know, love Jonah at the end of the, le of the book. And so we come to a, an abrupt end of our study in Jonah as well. And I hope that we consider well the lessons that we've learned and the truths about God that were revealed through the journey of the prodigal prophet from Galilee. Amen.